This is the Bill Kelly Show podcast. We continue to attempt to find out exactly why Las Vegas happened. What happened, of course, is still rather unclear. We do know that uh, as of now, there are 59 dead, and of course, over 400 taken to hospital with injuries, some of them bullet wounds, uh, others injured in other capacities, obviously, as uh, the 20,000 people tried to scatter. Uh, it's a, well, we know now it has been labeled as the worst mass shooting in modern American history. Joining us to talk about this is John Thompson, security consultant with the Strategic Intelligence Group, as uh, he joins us here on the Bill Kelly Show on CHML. John, thank you so much for the time. Good morning. Good morning. Uh, your your reaction to what happened, because I'm hearing all sorts of things from law enforcement officials uh, over the last 24 hours or so, John, some even suggesting, well, there's not much you can do about that. And, and, and I know that that's not a good answer. That's not what American people or anybody's looking for at a stage like this. And we do know that in light of some of the other occurrences that have happened, like the Orlando shooting, of course, in the nightclub a year and a half or so ago, and others, that... that, that Public establishments like hotels, et cetera, and public places are taking extra precautions, are they not? Yes, but there's only so much you can do. I mean, the problem is is that hotels and so on have to be accessed. People demand convenience, and there is uh, not much that can be done to secure a hotel. I mean, you could have, say, an innocuous weapons detector as a customer comes up to uh, register. But then, of course, you know, the customers will want to bring baggage up to their rooms from, say, an underground parking lot, and you, you can't have uh, alarms everywhere. So in the case of, say, someone who wants to bring 19 firearms, shooting arrests, scopes, and uh, hundreds of rounds of ammunition up to his room, uh, you might just not might be likely to stop them. How do you screen something like this? I mean, that's the obvious question, John, everybody had yesterday as, as the uh, some of the details anyway came to light, is when we found out about this arsenal that he had up in his two-room suite in that hotel room, uh, people were asking, how in heaven's name can you get that kind of uh, firepower up into a hotel? Well, I, I think uh, the investigation will reveal that he, he probably checked in the hotel in the ordinary way. Uh, and then went down, you know, took a baggage cart, went down to his vehicle in an underground parking lot and loaded it up. And, you know, the crates of ammunition might not have, you know, they just might have been looking like ordinary luggage. These firearms may have been in hockey bags uh, and brought them up. Uh, one bit at a time or a couple at a time or something, but clearly this is this is something that had been planned for quite some time. Do we have a better idea at this stage, John, of exactly what kind of weapon he, he was using? Um, this this is unusual. He had quite a variety of them, um, but from the, the soundtrack, at least one of them was automatic. Um, if the, the police also said he was uh, firing from a bench. So that uh, he was, uh, he had a system up so that even if he wasn't a very good shot himself, his gun was sandwiched into uh, uh, a stable platform with a scope on it. So he was shooting very accurately over several hundred meters. And and obviously, uh, from the uh, the stories we saw yesterday, anyway, they they said it was about 400 yards away, I guess, if we could just uh, try to draw a picture in people's minds about what was going on. But obviously, I guess he would have had a scope, and it, it didn't obviously look like he was going after one target. He just wanted to kill as many people as he could. Yeah. Um, it, this has always been sort of a nightmare situation, uh, especially for security. 
Um, there's all sorts of threats, and you know, especially with the the jihad movement now, we're learning, you know, just how easy it is to start killing large numbers of people in a, in an open area. But the nightmare has always been a trained rifleman up in a high place with a good vantage point. Um, and also, of course, we, we look at some of the other massacres that have occurred. You know, the uh, um, the massacre in Norway where uh, the gunman had an assault rifle but got a bunch of teenagers on an isolated island and killed dozens of them, uh, or the Mumbai attack where hundreds of people were killed. But when you've got riflemen running loose in a crowded area, uh, and it, it's, well, what in the military they call a target-rich environment, and you're going to get massive casualties. And, and well, we saw that in Dallas a year or so ago, too, uh, with, again, somebody who took the high ground in a higher building. Uh, and that problem was exacerbated by the fact that, of course, it's open carry in Dallas, and a lot of people were running around with firearms anyway, and you couldn't ascertain who the shooter was and who the victims were in situations like that. This well, Las, uh, Las, well Nevada is uh, one of the most liberal American gun, uh, mm-hmm. uh, gun states, but... Um, in Nevada, you can't bring your guns into a casino. So, uh, well, whatever, it, um, you you can't carry them openly, even if you can on the street. The, yeah, I'm, I'm thinking of a number of other uh, situations that have occurred, and it, it, as you were talking to us about about that scenario, about somebody who gets into a high rise or something like this. I mean, I, the the one that immediately comes to mind with me, I guess, was down at uh, University of Texas years ago. And I, an individual by the name of Charles Whitman just took the high ground, the top shelf of a of a building there, and just started picking people off on the university campus. Uh, we've seen other situations like that. Uh, it, and as you mentioned, John, it's impossible to, to to defend against some of these things completely. But but with this again, does does it does it beg people to start to to reevaluate uh, protocols and security measures at events like this? I mean, twenty thousand people in one place. There's not a whole lot you can do there, but uh, except to say if something happens, here's the plan. But how do you get twenty thousand people to to agree and to follow the plan? Well, uh, the, most people won't agree and follow the plan, but uh, you know. Except, for example, say uh, Parliament Hill on July first, uh, where most people didn't turn up and they only had maybe one uh, one twentieth uh, of the expected audience. Most people will put up with the security plans, you know, and that's why you see large dump trucks blocking roads and so on towards public events, and again more security, occasionally wandering through with wands or uh, uh, sniffer dogs looking for uh, firearms and explosives, but. A, you know, a sniper uh, in a high place is someone who, uh, you, that means you have to have a security perimeter that's hundreds of meters across. And they would, uh, do, they would do that for VIPs, wouldn't they, John? I mean, if this was a, uh, a, a, an elected official, well, a president or, or something of that nature, uh, I know that they do that around perimeters. I mean, even here at Hamilton, we've seen that when uh, there are VIP uh, events that are going on, for instance, in and around City Hall. Uh, there's a police presence, and you can see them in buildings. We saw that in Toronto during the G20, obviously. But at, a, at an outdoor concert like this, uh, I, I guess you know the question they have to ask is, well, how much is too much? And, and is there an expectation that something like this is going to happen? And now, of course, you've got to not just pay for... Uh you know, duty, uh, officers down working the crowd, uh, you've got to pay for uh, tactical units uh, perched up in the high place, you know, with sniper rifles and uh, devices scanning for, uh, scanning for a gunman. And it's not 
easy. I mean, again, police don't like big VIP events like that because they really are taxing. They involve a a lot of planning, a a lot of extra funding. Uh, There's a lot of overtime involved, and you've suddenly got, say, uh, 20 or 30 highly specialized officers moving around rapidly from vantage point to vantage point, and a lot of planning has to go on for it. Well, and like you say, that's staffing, and, and that's money, and I don't want to start putting a dollar figure to that because people are going to say, well, how much is a human life worth? Uh, but the the reality is is they get pressures from their elected officials all the time about spending, and uh, somebody has to draw the line someplace. Uh, you're right. You can't have people on top of buildings every time there's going to be a crowd forming. But but police do train for events like this, John, and I want you to, if you could, comment for a couple of minutes on how Las Vegas police responded when this started happening on Sunday evening. Uh, I, I thought they were pretty quick to identify what was going on and, and respond to it. Well, the, among other things, the shooter had blown out two hotel windows. So uh, right off the bat, it was quite evident where he was. He, he wasn't like a, uh, a perfect military-trained sniper who will be very, very concealed and hard to locate. So they got a fix on him quite quickly. And after that, it was just a question of uh, getting a special response unit into that building as quickly as possible. Um, we're still sort of working out what the exact time frame was and how many minutes it took, but I, I, they were certainly there uh, quick enough, usually quick enough for most circumstances, but not for someone gunning up a, a whole crowd. Exactly. And, and what's happening on the ground? We know about those officers that, that entered the hotel and rushed up to the 32nd floor, and uh, actually one of them was wounded in the first exchange with the gunman before the gunman, we were told, killed himself. But on the ground, what's going on? Is it about marshalling people at that stage? Is it about the potential of, of somebody else at, at some other location? Uh, are there eyes on, on other buildings at a situation like that? Well, that's actually one of the first problems. Uh, remember, if you start thinking about something like this, your first reaction, the same reaction that all of us had, was this was terrorism. And again, if it's like Mumbai or the Westgate Mall or some other things we've seen in, in elsewhere in the world, you know, it would, might not be one gunman. It might be several. So, yes, is this the only one? And, of course, with high-rise buildings, as we saw again in the the Texas shooting you brought up, the sound of gunshots echoes around buildings. So suddenly down in the crowd you've got 20,000 people with cell phones all trying to call in 911, and what they're trying to do is report their own impressions. So they might not see where the gunman is from, but they're hearing sound and they're saying, it's this direction or this direction, or there's two gunmen or three or four, and... Somewhere, again, you know, police are trying to work out as quickly as possible what the actual situation is. Well, we saw that in Ottawa, didn't we, John, uh, when the, the tragic death of Nathan Cirillo a couple of years ago. Uh, that's that's obviously an area of Ottawa where the Cenotaph is, where there's a number of tall buildings, uh, and there were echoes back forth. And at one point, I know that the initial reports anyway suggested that there could have been two or three other shooters, uh, as well as the perpetrator that rushed Parliament Hill eventually. And police were responding to those. So there is that, I guess, momentary confusion of trying to ascertain exactly what's going on and who's responsible. There is. Um, there's also, of course, new equipment out now that's been marketed for several years that will actually allow you to rapidly detect where a gunman is in an urban environment. You know, again, homing in on the, the sounds and the source and saying, okay, that, that's where the gunman is coming from. But, uh, again, this is new, uh, expensive, experimental and most police forces don't haven't thought before now that they need something like this. 
What about the investigation at this stage, John? How are police handling something like this? Obviously, we know, at least to this point anyway, we know that there was only one individual involved. And, and I know that some people seem reticent to use the word terrorism, but, I mean, when somebody stands there and shoots 59 people and wounds upwards 400 others, that's, that's terrorism. I don't care no, what color the skin is. No, not particularly. When you look at an event like this, I mean, the, the first thing is, is motive. And, and the general categories are political, in which case it is terrorism if he was doing this, or more likely to be terrorism, if he was doing this because he uh, was part of a coherent ideology that expected him to launch this attack. That's terrorism. Just straight up criminal, if you're know, doing this, you know, pay me money or I'll kill more people, that's pretty easy. Other than that, you've got the uh, what the police will sometimes inaccurately but still call psychotic. And this guy is doing this because he is mentally ill or disturbed or just angry, but he's not doing it for a political agenda and he's not doing it for his personal profit. Is there concern about copycats when something like this happens? That's the danger. Um, And again, if we go back uh, uh, about 15 years ago, we had uh, uh, a pair of snipers working in the the Washington area where they had uh, the trunk of a car and a gun out, and they would be shooting people from... uh, cover in a classic sniping attack. Oh, they called those the Beltway murders, didn't they? Yeah. Yeah. Um, I should warn you, I'm normally in the habit of remembering what the incident is, but often because the perpetrator wants his name remembered, I'm in the habit of deliberately forgetting those particular names. I, I think I, that's I think that's a great protocol. I follow the same process myself, John. I, I don't give those people publicity at all. Yeah, I, I could talk about the Columbine shootings, and I've already forgotten their names because they wanted to be remembered. So. Exactly. Um, but anyway, these, these two particular attackers, um, uh, they did in, inspire a lot of excitement in the jihad movement, and there was a, a big stress on sniping because actually the terrorist, the sniper is a, is a really uh, impressive figure. You know, He's someone who's off by himself, trained in the arts of killing. He's unseen. They imagine he causes a lot of fear and panic. And they'd like to be snipers. The problem is, though, is that to actually be good at sniping it takes a lot of work, a lot of very careful dedication, uh, and a lot of practice. And very few people can actually afford to keep practicing the level of skill that a sniper has. But again, here we had you know, a, a gunman who worked his way around that, because he didn't just bring up firearms, he also brought up uh, uh, shooting benches that actually allowed him to lock his gun into a stable mount so that actually he didn't have to worry so much about his technique. And a lot of ammunition certainly helped. Exactly. And you have to just wonder exactly how long that would have gone on had police not responded in the fashion that they did. John, thanks as always for the update on this. Uh, An awful lot of questions remain, obviously, and uh, it's it's going to take us an awful long time, I think, to get over the horror of this. And uh, uh, we can only hope that uh, some of those people that are still laying in hospital beds are going to recover. And I'm sure that there will be many stories to be told. Thank you again for taking some time for us, John. You're welcome. John Thompson, of course, is a uh, security consultant with the Strategic Intelligence Group. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. We warned you about this over the last number of years. Uh, we talked about the problems that Hamilton paramedics are facing right now. And uh, today comes word that uh, Hamilton Paramedic Service is actually close to a breaking point, according to one frontline paramedic anyway, who says that morale among EMS workers is sinking while pressures and demands mount. 
Mario Pastorero is the president of OPSU Local 256, of course, uh, the paramedic service here in this town. He joins us on the Bill Kelly Show to, to paint a picture. And it's, uh, first of all, Mario, thanks so much for the time. It's good to have you with us today. Thank you for having me on, Bill. I wanted you to paint a picture. It's not a very pleasant picture, is it? Well, there's a story behind the story, and I, I guess uh, it's, uh, it's obvious that medics are frustrated. Um, medics are now anonymously calling the news media to report the level of frustration, and it's hit a, a point of physical and mental fatigue, and uh, it's a significant level of disappointment amongst paramedics, and it's resulting in uh, poor morale, uh, disappointment, and, uh, and frustration, which is leading to an increase in absenteeism which onto itself is probably a partial coping mechanism given some of that services challenges, though. Well, anybody who has a, a job like a paramedic, a frontline and a first responder in situations like this understands the stress that's inherent in the job, uh, which is why, as you've told us in the past, Mario, it is so important that people that are in that position, uh, whether they be fire, police, uh, responders, <laughs> uh, for instance, like advanced care paramedics, frontline paramedics, or others of that ilk, that you've got to have some downtime. You've got to be able to, to step back. You've got to be able to get away from it for just a little while. Uh, and and I know that's something you have a, a discussion about during contract times, but uh, whatever is awarded at a contract is meaningless if you don't get the time off. And that's yeah, apparently what I'm told is what's happening now. Well, the service is facing some significant challenges. As, as we've reported previously, call volume continues uh, to increase. And there hasn't been sufficient frontline staffing to mitigate that increase in calls. And that just translates to a heavy workload for paramedics. Yes, the job we do is both physically and mentally straining. And there's a combination of different events over the last little while, including paramedics having difficulty in getting uh, time off, uh, that is creating uh, a significant level of frustration. And it is impacting the clinical care that paramedics deliver uh, in the absence of getting the time off that they're um, entitled to get off. So there's some significant problems. We're going to try to work them through with the management, but you can't deny the fact, and we can't deny the fact that there's a crisis. There's some serious cracks in the service, and we need to fill those gaps and try to move forward and fix some of the problems. But you know, our senior management has to aggressively pursue additional funding to put additional emphasis on the front lines. It's indisputable that the call volume continues to increase, and there's not a commensurate increase in frontline staff, and it's not sustainable. Well, isn't that the line here that we really have to start uh, talking about here, Mario? I mean, you know, you've, you've stretched yourselves as pretty much as far as you can right now with existing staff and existing resources. Uh, and, and on a perfect day where there's only a certain number of calls uh, and there are no backlogs at the hospitals, I, I guess you can make it work. But I mean, I, when I look at the statistic here that, uh, that jumps out at me here, that there have already been 85, 85 code zeros in Hamilton so far this year. And of course, code zeros, we know, is when there are one or less ambulances across the service's entire fleet available for call. That's happened 85 times already. And uh, we're just now into October. So you know that number is going to rise. That tells me that you don't have the resources to cover everything. I mean, one little blip, one extra call, one delay at a hospital, and everything gets thrown out of whack. Well, it sure does. And, you know, code zero events and the reporting of them, and they're probably underreported, as we stated, they're provided by a third party, and the length of the code zeros varies, and sometimes they're for um, in excess of a couple of hours. Um, code zeros are just one metric to uh, determine the level of staffing that we have, but, you know, what's to say when you have two ambulances, that's an acceptable number of ambulances in a, 
in a city with the geographic um, variance that we have in the city of Hamilton, even having two Hamilton is not acceptable. And I tried to put uh, a picture to the story the last time we spoke about it. You know, when somebody's laying on the ground for a half hour and an ambulance isn't there to help them, and that person's a senior citizen, which is a significant demographic and a growing demographic of our population and our patients, we're letting those patients down. I don't think it's disputable as to whether we need more ambulances. The question is, you know, what's taking so long, and what's it going to take for city council to move forward and provide the additional enhancement? Last time I was on, I said we need at least five additional frontline ambulances just to put a dent in the call volume. Um, in the absence of, of those five ambulances, um, our paramedics are going to continue um, to suffer. They will not deliver the clinical care that our patients deserve, and our service will... Um, will suffer as a result of it. Um, there's, there's only so many ways we can say the same thing, though. Uh, I think paramedics are reaching the point where um, they're frustrated, morale's at an all-time low. There's a lot of other different factors that are now weighing in pertaining to um, staffing, unable to take time off, that type of thing, that are making problems worse. We need to fix these. Well, and, and it comes down to numbers. I mean, let's just cut right to the quick here. And, and that's, I, as you say, the debate that city council has to have. And, and I don't deny that it's a significant number that you're asking for, and there's a, there's a pretty big price tag on top of that. But I, I hope they, they understand, Mario, that we're talking about human lives here. I mean, you and I talked about the the tragic story, of course, of Catherine Terry when you were joining us a couple of weeks ago. And she's the, uh, the Hamiltonian, of course, age 71, who actually died of a heart attack during a Code Zero alert. Uh, it took 28 minutes to uh, respond to that initial call uh, because of the circumstance. And, and I know there's an investigation ongoing about that particular incident right now, but how many other incidents just like that one are happening all the time that we don't hear about in the news? It will continue to occur. The fact that it hasn't occurred and received the, uh, the publicity that that, that uh, poor patient experience is, is a surprise, but... Um, it, we're going to be challenged. I mean, people call 911, they expect a level of expediency in having a paramedic arrive at their doorstep. When it doesn't arrive, um, you know, what's that say about the service that we provide? And for city council, they have to prioritize their expenditures. And when I said five additional ambulances equates to approximately $5 million, um, half of that is paid by the provincial government. So it's a $2.5 million expenditure. It's, it's a serious expenditure, but it's also an investment in its citizens. Uh, a city council is is tasked with making decisions on expenditures, and I can't see an expenditure that's any less great at this point in time than investing in our ambulance service bill. The numbers support it. The stories support it. We just need the money, and we need the money now. We don't need it in three and four years. Now, last year, we missed the boat because there was not additional uh, funding provided to our ambulance service, and unfortunately, senior management has had to wear that because they didn't aggressively pursue additional uh, funding for additional analysis. And that's creating a lot of disharmony within the workforce. Uh, I'm hoping we can turn the corner. I've been told that senior management has put forth a request for 2018. Um, we'll have to wait and see. But in the meantime, we've got some serious problems. Hopefully we can resolve them. Uh, the union has always been um, available and um, willing to collaborate with this management. We think it's the right management. We just hope that it's uh, reprioritized in areas that are important to the service, to the citizens, and our paramedics. Because any good ambulance service has to balance the interests of three um, 
equally important components. Number one is the taxpayer. The taxpayer has to receive good value for its dollars. The patient. The patient needs to receive good care. And the paramedic. Unless the paramedics are treated well, it doesn't really matter that the other two factors are, are dealt with. Paramedics are a critical component of any contemporary ambulance service. And as it stands now, paramedics are being uh, denied time off. And the service is starting to show cracks and morale is sagging. And we've got to fix that fact um, in order to have a service that we think is, has to fire in all cylinders. And, and right now, and, you know, management may not want to hear it, but the fact is we're not running optimally, Bill. Is there a problem with the approach that the, the city councils, elected officials for that matter, Mario, take towards emergency services? Uh, because I mean, I've heard the same discussion in varying forms, for instance, about police service and even about fire. Uh, they'll say, oh, you know, call volumes are down. Sometimes these people are just sitting around. Maybe we don't need as much of them or we don't need as many of them as, as the case might be. But they, they seem to miss the whole idea here that the, the purpose of, of this is, of course, is to respond to emergency situations and to have a full complement of staff that can provide that service once it happens. And, and that's why, yeah, there could be an afternoon where a firefighter sits at, at the shop. They've always got stuff to do, but they may not respond to a call. But you still want them there if that bell rings. Same thing with police, but most definitely with emergency services, with paramedics, when you get that 911 call, oftentimes somebody's life is being threatened. For, it could be an accident. It could be any number of different things that are going on. But speed is of the essence right now, and they, they just don't seem to get the idea that we just don't have enough bodies to respond. Well, the request for additional resources and the industry functions on, uh, there's some science behind it. Obviously, there's certain metrics that determine the level of staffing, uh, the number of paramedics per thousand population, uh, the number of paramedics per thousand calls, all of those measurements point quite clearly to a need for more frontline resources. So that's not even a discussion anymore. I, I, we're, we're past the proving point. The evidence is indisputable. We're at the point, what are you going to do about it? It's either you decide to invest in the ambulance service and in your citizenry, your patients, or you decide not to and spend the money elsewhere. It's really that simple. There's no need to overcomplicate the issue. Either you do it or you don't. And if you don't, you're going to end up with a poor ambulance service, a poor uh, paramedic group that is demoralized, feeling the stresses of an uh, of an over overwhelmed uh, service in call volume, or you know we 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 we're, we're content with that. I, I just don't believe that council would not want to prioritize our EMS service and provide the additional funding that's necessary. But here's and the problem again. with this, Mario. Is you're absolutely right. Those who, who study these things, like emergency services, uh, on a national and on an international basis, they have done their homework, and they do have uh, guidelines, ratios, as it were, of, of how many staff you need per 100 people or 1,000 people, whatever the, the, the paradigm is. And and I know I can, you know as well as I do it, when it comes to police service, for instance, Hamilton actually is below that threshold. We do not have as many police officers as we're supposed to for our population here, and it's been like that for years. And and yet those same people that are saying we have to keep these costs low are the same ones that will complain when somebody takes 25 minutes to respond to a call or doesn't respond at all because they say, well, you come in and fill out a report. They they say, well, there's not enough staff. And the same thing is happening in your department now where you're following below the threshold right now, and they're just looking at this as a, as a budget line as opposed to this is a, a public service. I, I, I just don't understand the mindset. Well, I, I would 
I would ask that any counselor that doesn't believe we need additional dollars to support a progressive ambulance service, look the family in the eye of the patient that's, whose uh, parent, um, whose sibling has had to wait 35, 40, an hour um, for an ambulance to arrive. And if that patient dies unnecessarily, how are they going to explain the fact that they kept a budget line and they kept a tax increase at 0.9% versus 1%? Because that's really what it's going to come down to. And it often takes a crisis for people to say, geez, this is pretty serious. Uh, but again, our management has to vigorously pursue additional funding, and city council has to prioritize that funding towards our ambulance service. And I like to call it an investment. This is not money that's being squandered. We need this money. We needed it yesterday. Our call volume continues to increase. Right now our service is showing significant cracks, and the only way to mitigate some of the deficiencies is to provide additional funding. It's it's, it's that simple, Bill. Either they do it or they don't. Well, and this is a, more, a matter of more than just transportation here, okay? It's just, uh, let's go pick the patient up and take him to the hospital if that's what the situation warrants. But you're advanced care paramedics. You are trained to be first responders at the scene, whether it's an accident, whether it's a, a, a heart attack, or it could be a stroke. And you know as well as I do, Mario, that time is of the essence in situations like that. If you can get there in 17 minutes instead of 27 minutes, uh, you might be able to save somebody's life. You may be able to, to, to mitigate what could be life-challenging uh, uh, ramifications. I mean, you know, the faster you deal with a stroke, the better that person has a chance of recovery. Same thing with heart attacks. Same thing with anything else, too. Delays like this may not necessarily result in, in the tragic death like it did for Catherine Terry, but it can cause other complications, too. Well, our paramedics are amongst the highest trained in North America. So the ability to deliver a definitive and advanced care is unquestionable. We need the tools in order to do that. Time is of an essence, but also not only to save life, but to provide comfort. Again, picture the elderly lady who's fallen down, cracked the hip, has never had to call 911 before. She calls, and she's withering in pain for 60 minutes. Are we letting that patient down? And that's where we can intervene and provide uh, pain relief. Um, we can stabilize, provide medical transport, bring the patient to a hospital where they receive definitive care, which enhances their life. Um, in the absence of that, um, a patient's laying on the floor, withering in pain, and we're not there. And we can't get there for over an hour. That doesn't speak very well of a progressive ambulance service. And I think that's the context within which city council has to view this. Not only do we save lives, we provide care and comfort. Now, unless we have the resources, in light of the increasing call volume, though, it was 79,000 calls that we responded to last year. It was a 7% increase from the year previous. Over the last five years, our call volume has increased 35%. It's con going to continue to increase because fortunately or unfortunately, our city has a very high percentage of elderly patients. We need to not let those patients down. And, you know, it's going to come down to, to dollars and council has to make the decision. And hopefully that decision is that they're going to invest appropriately and prioritize our ambulance service. Time and time again, uh, when we had programs about, for instance, heart attacks and, and cardiac problems or stroke, any number of things like that, and I know you get a number of those calls too, Mario. The, the, you know, they always say, don't drive yourself to the hospital. You know, call 911. The reason they do that is, is because, obviously, you are trained to stabilize the situation on the scene. 
as opposed to somebody who gets behind the wheel while they're having chest pains could die behind the wheel and kill themselves and somebody else. You can do something immediately and stabilize them until there's transportation to, to the hospital in a situation like that. But that only works if you can get there in a timely fashion. And uh, you're absolutely right. City Council has to understand that this is, and I know it's a cliche in some people's minds, but this is a matter of life and death. It sure is, and you know, unfortunately, when these stories roll out, and you know, our our citizenry hears that you know patients have had to wait an hour, instinctively they're thinking, well, I'm having chest pain, uh, or I, you know, I, I can't speak. Perhaps I should get myself to the hospital because I can't afford to wait an hour. That's the net of a that's the net effect of a, a of a service that, in the eyes of the public, isn't delivering their needs, and perhaps they inadvertently drive themselves to the hospital and cause an accident. That's not what we want. You know, we want our patients to call 911, but by the same token, we don't want to let them down. We want to get there within an acceptable period of time, uh, deliver uh, life-threatening care, uh, deliver comforting care to the patient. And I think that has to be the focus. And, uh, you know, it always comes back around to city council making the decision, our senior management pursuing additional dollars so we can fix some of the problems that presently ail our service. And, sh- and, our, and our service is showing significant cracks in, in different areas, including our paramedic staff that is disappointed, uh, fatigued, um, both mentally and physically, and you don't provide good care unless you have everybody running on all cylinders. And right now, that is not the case, sadly. Well, Angel, we just have to finish this off right now by reminding uh, our, our listeners and our taxpaying citizens once again that uh, city council will do this on $0.50 cent dollars because the province will pay 50% of the cost. So, But they won't kick in the money unless the, uh, the, pro- the city council reacts first. So it's, it's the ball's in their court. It's up to them to get something done about this. Mario, we're going to stay on this issue, and we're going to stay on this topic until we, we get some satisfaction on this. I really do appreciate you taking the time out of a busy day for yourself today, I know, to uh, spend some time with us. Thanks for this. Thanks for the opportunity. Have a nice day, Bill. You too. Mario Pastoro, president of Opsi Local 256. You're listening to The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML. Uh, I was a big fan, still am. What am I saying? It's just me in the past tense. A big fan of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, a uh, member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and uh, just an outstanding uh, uh, concert uh, if you ever got a chance to see Tom Petty live. He uh, died yesterday, age 66. Uh, we're told he had a heart attack, was uh, found in his room, rushed to hospital, uh, absent vital signs. And uh, it's a great loss for the music industry. To talk about uh, Tom Petty and his career and his contribution to rock and roll, I'm so pleased to welcome back to the program Alan Cross, music journalist, internationally known broadcaster, and always a welcome guest here at CHML. How are you doing today, Alan? Well, I love being on the show, but I don't like being on the show under these circumstances. Yeah, I know. This is happening way too often. And, and it's interesting, the dynamic. I was talking with some friends about this earlier this morning, Alan. That, uh, you know, when as we were growing up and some of our icons left us too soon, the Jim Morrisons and, and Hendrix and Mama Cass and, and, and people of that ilk, I guess you could go all the way back to Buddy Holly and Richie Valens and the Whopper too, you, you, you bemoan them because you just said, way too soon, way too soon. They, these kids were just young and just starting out and just, you know, full of creativity. Uh, now our rock and roll heroes, are, are life is catching up with them. I mean, with Bowie and, and now Tom Petty. And it's, it's a different dynamic, but it doesn't hurt any less, does it? No, it doesn't. We have to realize that these people live some pretty hard lives through the 70s, 80s, and 90s. I mean, the whole sex, drugs, and rock and roll thing. Your body will give out, and you will suffer the consequences long term. And age-wise, well, if you look at the actuarial tables, 
and you look at the potential causes of death, I mean, you know, heart attack, cancer, these things are, are, are common to people of that age and of that lifestyle. And it's interesting, uh, those who will live maybe beyond some of those expectations, you look at a guy like Paul McCartney, who's, what, he's 74, I think, now, isn't he? 74, 75, yeah. Yeah, I, I mean... Uh, and we know that, yeah, that you know they went through the whole thing when they were younger as the Beatles, and they all smoked because that's what they did back in those days. You know, as they were growing up in Liverpool. Uh, but Paul's a vegan now. I think that he eats well. I mean, they work out. Mick Jagger, I think, goes to the gym for an hour and a half every day. Uh, some people get the message and 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 try to extend themselves, and and thank God for that. Yeah, uh, you know, McCartney is is uh, like everybody else in the Beatles was uh, a heavy, heavy smoker back in the day. He was also into speed pills, like everybody back in the day. Um, Jagger had his, you know, his issues with with you know various types of self abuse. Let's call it that. But then we look at at, at Keith Richards. I mean, you and I <laughs> have to really think about what kind of world we want to leave Keith, because you know, next to cockroaches. You know, when he finally goes, and I'm not convinced he will, because I think his his soul isn't uh, in possession of the devil. Uh, there's this. It'll be so. I mean, that'll be the end. You know, when you know what I'm saying. It's uh, when when I took my son to go see the Pirates of the Caribbean movie in which he starred, when we played uh, Johnny Depp's dad. And he's look at the makeup. I said, "There's no makeup. That's him. That's that's, that's what that's what he looks like." Yeah. They just they just put a hat on him, and that was it. Yes, that's true. <laughs> but but back uh, back to uh, to Tom Petty. Let's let's talk a little bit about this. Just an iconic career, and uh, I was always fascinated by how he he got interested in this. He grew up in Florida, of course, uh, and meeting Elvis at a very young age. I guess he was. Uh, I guess he had an uncle or somebody that worked in the movie sets for one of the Elvis movies, and, and that was, I guess, the pivotal moment in his career. Well, he was born in 1950, and that means he's just old enough to be able to straddle a couple of very important eras in rock and roll. So as, as a kid, listening to Florida radio, he's hearing Elvis Presley, he's hearing uh, Buddy Holly, he's hearing Jerry Lee Lewis, he's hearing Little Richard, and then by the time he's 13, he's well-steeped in this music just in time for the Beatles to appear on Ed Sullivan. And he remembers saying that, okay, this is what I want to do for a living. I want to be in a band. So he works his way through to 1970, forms a band called Mud Crutch. They last one album in about five years. And when they break up, and they are sort of reconstituted as the Heartbreakers in 1975. Now, at that point, Petty is 25 years old. He has seen so much music, the 50s, the early 60s with the British Invasion, the late 60s with the Summer of Love and the hippie stuff, the early 70s with the rise of the Rolling Stones and with Led Zeppelin and, and so on. So he has a really good overview and has been steeped in this for a very long time. But his music turned out to be more, I guess, retroactive, regressive, than what was happening at the time, because the big bands were Led Zeppelin with the guitar solos mm -hmm. and uh, you know Van Halen with whatever they were doing, along with uh, what we would call what we used to call corporate rock, which was Boston, Kansas, uh, Journey, uh, Foreigner, those kinds of groups. Tom Petty comes out with songs that are very succinct, very concise, 
and with very little fat on them. I mean, he would go through an album in 36 minutes. So uh, his record company at the beginning didn't know what to do with him because he didn't sound like anybody. And he certainly wasn't what you'd call a handsome man, so he didn't look like anybody. So the only place that ABC Records, which was his first record label with the Heartbreakers, the only thing that they could do with him is try to market him as an American new wave artist. And that failed absolutely miserably. He had a couple of sort of hits, like Breakdown, and appeared in a movie called FM and a few other things. But he really wasn't, that was the wrong thing for him. Isn't that a conundrum, Alan? I mean, because you've talked about that on your radio show for years. That because uh, I can remember the days of record reps visiting radio stations and saying, "Okay, Alan, got to listen to this one. This is this is hot stuff. This is going the next thing." But there was always that that comparator. Hey, this guy sounds like Sp- Bruce. This no, oh, this guy sounds like Robert Plant. Or hey, this sounds like such and such. Uh, and and maybe that was part of the problem with Tom Petty. They couldn't they couldn't put a label on him. No, they couldn't. They absolutely couldn't. And uh, when when the whole new wave thing failed, another thing happened. His record label was sold to MCA Records. And Petty had always been very, very vehement about artists' rights and this creative freedom that he believed artists were d- deserved. And he didn't want to go along with the sale. He said, look, you can't trade me like I'm a hockey player. I don't want to go. You can't do this without my consent. So rather than go through all the hassle of, well, rather than compromise, what he did was he filed for bankruptcy. And he, he just said, no, I'm not going to play this game. I would rather go down with my music than play the corporate game. So that lasted for uh, a little while until uh, MCA Records, the new record label, created a brand new sub-label for him called uh, Backstreet Records, and he signed with them. Then, in early 1991, 1981, his record label said that, look, you've sold a lot of records, and what we would like to do is boost the price of your albums by $1. We're going to do this with all our superstar acts. In fact, we're going to call this superstar pricing. And Petty was absolutely outraged at this. He wanted to stick up for the fans. So rather than have his album go from $8.98 to $9.98, he said, I'm holding back the record I'm working on. This would be the Hard Promises album. Mm-hmm. And not only am I holding back this record, but I'm going to release it maybe on my own, and I'm going to call it 898. So <laughs> eventually MCA Records said, okay, fine, Tom, you, you, you win, and we're not going to have the superstar pricing thing anymore. Just as well for them, because shortly after, after that, the compact disc was introduced, and the whole idea of album pricing was, uh, was, was a good point. But he was, you know, and and fans loved him for this, and musicians loved him for this because he was able to take, he was he was taking a stand, and he did things. He put his money where his mouth was, really. Yeah. Talk to us about relationships, and and, and again, uh, this is the thing that I always found intriguing. Uh, I know this is going to lead to the Wilburys eventually, but uh, the the folks that Tom knew, you think of Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, and as you say, there were a couple of incarnations of the Heartbreakers along there. But he developed friendships and relationships. Uh, uh, two that stick out for me were Jeff Lynn of the Electric Light Orchestra and, and Bob Dylan, who I guess he played with and toured with for a while, didn't he? Yeah, he did. He was very well respected by the Grateful Dead, by Bob Dylan, by George Harrison, by Roy Orbison, by Jeff Lynn, by Stevie Nicks, and, of course, uh, Jimmy Iovine, who became his, his producer and mentor and 
now makes billions of dollars thanks to Apple. So, you know, he was extremely well-liked um, by so many people. So, um, you know, it, it tells you something about Petty as a man, that, that he could have all these high-powered friends and work with them with seemingly little, uh, little friction. It's it's interesting because uh, when the Wilburys were formed eventually, and they did that fabulous album, uh, the the irony there, people say, well, how could you get all these people together? And and I guess the reality, Alan, is these these guys were all friends and all fans of each other. Yeah, yeah, and you know that that's absolutely amazing. And for for Petty, you know, it must have been absolutely fantastic for him to uh, be able to work with with George Harrison, considering that he saw him as a thirteen year old, yeah, and and couldn't believe that. Uh, he would, you know, be able to work with him one day. And and there were the, the, the whole thing about this. You watch the videos and, of course, the albums and the stories about how they put that stuff together. Here's Dylan. Here's George Harrison. Here's Jeff Lynn. Here's Tom Pett. No ego. And Roy, of course, Roy Orbison there too. Uh, there was there was this mutual admiration among everybody. I mean, it was it wasn't like, hey, I, I need a line here. I get the line here. It was just this incredible collaboration. I think mean, one of the great regrets I got about the the, the Wilburys is that they, they were so short lived, and I, I know that even when Roy Orbison passed away, I'm sure you heard the story. As a matter of fact, you told it on your show. I think that the rumor was Del Shannon was going to join the group as Roy's replacement, and they were going to continue, but it never really happened. No, it didn't. I think they realized that they had um, had put out two good albums, and that without Roy, it wasn't the Traveling Wilburys. So they are just no, uh, we're we're not going to. We're not going to sully his memory by flying in a replacement, and and you really have to admire that. And at the same time, they all had their own business and their own thing going on, and I guess it speaks to the integrity of the music that all of them uh, relished, that they just said, no, that is that, we did that, that project, it's finished, now we're going back here. Yes. So, um, well, and, and again, you know, Petty was his own man, he had his own way of doing things. And uh, he really believed in the integrity of his of the, his music and his um, and his uh, sort of his, his, his image, and that's just the way it was going to be. Put him in in that in that paradigm of he's he's a member of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, and I, I think a well deserved uh, appointment to to that uh, body, of course, but. Uh, now let's let's look at him in in the history of rock and roll where it's gone. You mentioned that uh, this is a guy that saw Elvis in his early days. I, I was influenced by the Beatles, like so many others were, and started this. But I mean, eventually he was that guy up on that pedestal that others were trying to emulate uh, and and try to carry and, and try to maybe if they could imitate that style. He 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 became not just somebody who was trying to pattern himself after some of the other rock icons. He he had his own style that others wanted to try to to, to copy. Yeah, you know, one of the things, one of the games we played uh, after going to see Desert Trip last October, which was featured featured Bowie and the Stones mm-hmm. and Neil Young and Paul McCartney and Roger Waters and the Who, the game we played was okay. If we're going to do this again, who do you who do you book? And we came up with the Eagles. We came up with Fleetwood Mac. We came up with the Kinks. We came up with Led Zeppelin, and we came up with Tom Petty. He belongs with all those people, and it's unfortunate. There is going to be a desert trip in 2018, and I guarantee you that he was front and center for that particular event, and uh, unfortunately, we we will not see it. You know, uh, I guess he was back in this area in July, 
Um, the 40th anniversary Heartbreakers tour went really well. There were three solo shows at the Hollywood Bowl last week. Uh, apparently, he was in great voice. Uh, the band was super, super tight. That tour was going to restart in November in New York. And, uh, you know, you just don't expect these things to happen. So it's... it's People, I think, are, are just coming to terms with the fact exactly, you know, how many hits he had, how many best-selling albums he had, how much of an influence he had on others, and how well he was liked amongst not only fans but other musicians. He had this everyman quality that a lot of rock stars just don't have. You had the feeling when you, when you saw Petty that you could sit down and have a beer with him. You didn't get that feeling. You don't get that feeling when you look at Jagger or you know Roger Daltrey or Bob Dylan. Or Roger Waters, uh, he was one of these these everyman dudes. Who but was but it, it wasn't that the magic though, Alan? That that you listen to Tom Petty, it was the same as listening to Bruce or to uh, to John Cougar or John Mellencamp, rather. You figured, hey, he's singing about me. He's singing about yeah. my life. He he may have been from Florida, but he was very very popular with the Heartland. You know, a lot of people say that his music was made almost specifically. I mean, perfectly for for driving a car. And uh, not or, or a pickup truck or someplace with wide open roads. I mean, you listen to a song like "Running Down a Dream," or you listen to a song like "Free Fallen." I mean, that great, great driving songs. And he, you know, if you listen to the words, you got the sense that okay, this is a guy that is articulating the hopes, fears, dreams, wishes, ambitions, confusions of of. Normal, regular, everyday people, not rock stars. And, and that's the kind of thing that endeared him to uh, several generations of, of music fans and will continue to do that. Absolutely. I mean, a, a song like well, one of my favorites, I Won't Back Down, I mean, that became an anthem for an awful lot of people, uh, I think, and that's, that's going to be part of his legacy. Uh, sad day, but uh, obviously we have the music, and uh, that's something that they can't take away from us. Always a pleasure, Alan. Thank you so much for this today. Really appreciate right. the time. You're very welcome. Take care. Alan Cross, of course, music journalist and internationally known broadcaster. A lot of stuff, of course, when Alan was doing a show, actually out at the studios here in Hamilton for quite some time, picked up an awful lot of the great information about uh, the legends like Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. The Bill Kelly Show, weekdays from 9 to noon on AM 900 CHML.